The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 29th, 2014. From Slate, it's The GIST. Tonight, World Series Game 7. I'm going to help you. I used to do sports for a living. Now I do sports for a quasi-living. So you've probably heard this statistic. So I'm saying this now, even if you're not a sports fan, you want to know something about Game 7. And the statistic that everyone says to help everyone understand this is the last nine times there's been a Game 7, the home team has won. And that seems, if not dispositive, that seems really like a strong trend. Like, how can the Royals not win? Well, let me tell you a couple things. One... The 16 World Series before that, because baseball goes back to, I think, the Roman times. The 16 World Series before that, 13 road teams won. So how's that affect you? But I want to even put this in a bigger context. The reason why it gets me a little upset when they say, oh, the home team always wins, is something that I read Bill James quoted as. Joe Posnanski, one of our great sports writers, did a story today on Bill James. Bill James is the most interesting thinker in the history of baseball, maybe with the exception of Branch Rickey, right? The guy who, well, he's credited with inventing all these stats, but he didn't. He asked the right questions. And here's something he said about stats. And I think this is true about baseball, but about politics, about polls. Listen to what he says. A statistician is concerned with what baseball statistics are. And then he says, I'm not like that. I had no concern with what they are. I was concerned with what the statistics mean. That, in light of the last nine winners, that's what this statistic is. The last nine teams who have been home have won. What does that statistic mean? I suggest it means very little. That said, eh, maybe the Royals will win. In the spiel today, uncles wooing nieces, five-hour energy wooing attorney generals, and Lexus trying to woo me. And a new play that is written as one long speech, but whoever puts it on has to decide who says what and why and where. But first, I'll give you a stat. One man alone, independent, not beholden to any party, able to affect the balance of power. Is that a dream in this political climate? Well, maybe a dream, but a dream with a chance of actually occurring. This is similar in spirit to the realization that all the new great advances of medical science will have no benefit for us, even though we cheer them and hope a vaccine will be ready in time, think things could get better. Like the poet said, the ways we miss our lives are life. And that is from the Richard Ford novel, Independence Day, which brings me to my discussion. Independence. Will this be a day for the independence in Washington, D.C.? There could be as many as four independents in the Senate, and I don't know, maybe that'll shake things up. Norm Orenstein has written about this in The Atlantic. He's a contributing editor there. He's a columnist for the National Journal. He's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy. There are two or three organizations in Washington with which he is not affiliated, I hear. Hello, Mr. Orenstein. Good to be with you, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about the practical first. This is a long shot, but how could it happen that independent senators could prove to be a fulcrum, if not swing the balance of power? 
Well, let's just start with the most likely election uh, of an independent this time, and that's in Kansas, where you have a bit of a revolt against a Republican uh, Party, uh, starting with a governor who has moved the state's policy uh, sharply to the almost radical right, and a senator, Pat Roberts, uh, who had to go through a bruising primary, uh, which uh, basically exposed him because uh, he's been pretty much out of uh, touch with the state. The sort of uh, uh, problem that we saw with Richard Luger a couple of years ago, not really even having a residence back home. And a Democratic Party, which knows it's uh, unable to compete in a very red state, uh, and had its candidate drop out so that an independent named Greg Orman, attractive guy, could uh, be up head to head with uh, Roberts. And Orman has led most of the, the last several polls. It's close. But if he wins, he joins two other independents in the Senate or two other people who are uh, did not get elected as affiliated people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angus King, uh, the former governor and now senator from Maine, and Bernie Sanders, who was elected as a socialist in Vermont. Now, Sanders and King have caucused in the past, have joined forces with the Democratic Party, which gives them seniority and committees uh, in accord with uh, the vote that they cast to put them in the majority. Sanders is not likely to move. But Angus King already indicated that he was not completely wedded to the Democratic Party. It would depend on how the election came out. Greg Orman has refused to say with whom he would caucus. Um, And you put the two of them together in a Senate where Republicans might otherwise gain five seats, Mm -hmm. making them uh, 50 votes, uh, but with 51 needed for them to make a majority because if it's 50-50, the vice president, uh, Joe Biden, cast the tie-breaking vote. So just imagine that it's a 50-47-3 Senate. Mm-hmm. That makes 50-48 with Bernie Sanders. And if those two Republicans, uh, or two independents, I should say, or even uh, one of them, says, well, let's make a deal here, uh, they've got enormous leverage uh, over uh, Mitch McConnell if he's reelected and wants to fulfill his lifetime goal of becoming a majority leader. Do you think that it's a coincidence that all the independents we're talking about either do caucus with the Democrats or would, not the Republicans? Uh, Under most circumstances now, people coming in who are not at the right end of the spectrum are going to look at the two parties and see what we know is asymmetric polarization. The Republicans and those who would chair a lot of these committees have moved very, very sharply over towards a fairly radical side. And at the same time, if you are somewhere in the middle and what you're frustrated about is the inability to govern, the difficulty here is that a Republican Senate is going to block almost all of the president's nominations uh, from moving towards confirmation, is going to hold all kinds of hearings on Benghazi, 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 IRS, IRS, IRS. And you're not going to get necessarily a constructive legislative package going forward. Now, what do you make of all these polls? And this is a rising number of people who are saying we want compromise. That is the thing we're looking for out of uh, the next Senate, even as much as we want jobs. I think uh, that would be a powerful appeal to a lot of people who actually may even identify with one of the two tribes but are frustrated by the lack of compromise. Uh, But there's something else to keep in mind that while we've had the asymmetric polarization in Washington, 
We also have some asymmetry in the polarization out in the country. Mm -hmm. And if you look at uh, polls that ask Democrats, independents, Republicans, do you think that the people we send to Washington should stand on principle and not compromise, even if it means nothing gets done, or should compromise even if they don't get everything that they want so that uh, policies can get enacted? About uh, two-thirds of Democrats and independents say compromise. And close to two-thirds of Republicans uh, stand on principle. But stand on principle has been eroding this la- these last couple years. It's not as popular as it once was, and compromise yeah. across all political spectrum is getting popular. I don't know if that means the electorate is getting smarter or just more fed up and they don't know where this energy could go. I mean, I've seen so many Senate races where the Republican says, hey, you want to break the gridlock? That's easy. Vote for me, Republican majority. No, absolutely. And of course, uh, what you also get is uh, some members say, well, you know, I think we should compromise. That means you give in. Yes, Uh, of course. (laughs) And uh, that makes it more difficult. And what also is challenging is that our natural inclination, if you think, well, we should have compromises, well, divided government will do that. Mm -hmm. It used to do that. But in recent years, Uh, because we have parties that are acting more like parliamentary parties and a minority party that just reflexively votes against everything that the majority or the president wants. Uh, Divided government leads almost inexorably to gridlock, but we're going to have more of it no matter what for at least the next two years and probably beyond. I mean, you could argue it's not a structural problem, it's just the way one party is acting. But once they've demonstrated that you can act this way, doesn't it now become a structural problem with our legislature? It absolutely does. And you've got to try and think about ways in which you can adjust the structures to accommodate it, although it's more a cultural problem uh, than it is a structural problem. But, you know, there are some things, including uh, adjustments in the filibuster rule, that we've already seen make a difference. There are things that could be done to try and foster a better climate if you could finally get people to move a little bit closer together, like changing the schedule. Uh, There are things that we could do to try and alter the mix of people in Congress or alter uh, the forces that they feel from their voters. And that especially means enlarging the electorate so that you don't have a smaller fringe group that dominates every time there's a party primary. And it also means changing uh, in some fashion, although this is a much longer shot, the new campaign finance uh, climate, which really gives enormous bludgeons to groups or individuals who want to pull people away from the uh, negotiating table. Would you say that it was the case that uh, maybe when you were a young man that it was prudent to have divided government and now it's been demonstrated that that is just not prudent anymore? Close to that, Mike. I used to think basically that if we move from periods of united government to periods of divided government, that was fine. Sometimes united government is a good thing to have because it can result in a push for more dramatic change that can alter the landscape, and then you can move into a period of adjustment. So having united government in uh, the, for the great society, which gave us Medicare and many other things, and then when you end up with periods of divided government, you find the two parties get buy-in to making policies that actually can improve things. And that, I think, you know, worked with a lot of uh, bumps in the road and glitches along the way, which is built into a democratic political process pretty well. But if we live in a world where there's the permanent campaign and the only thing that matters is getting advantage for the next election and you have a party that controls one house 
knowing that if the country fares badly, the midterm elections are going to cut against the president's party, and that can work for you. You have incentives to keep good things that will help people from happening. And then if you are able to take even more of a piece of the action, you have too much of an incentive to vote against and block things from happening. That is a peril right now, and it makes it clear that divided government is not going to help us make these adjustments. It may very well hinder them. Norm Orenstein writes for The Atlantic as an editor and columnist for The National Journal and is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. Thank you, Norm. Sure, Mike, anytime. A lifelong love of learning. That actually is the number one thing that people tell people who do market research about NPR. I used to work for NPR. And they used to say that, you know, most people love NPR because of a lifelong love of learning. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. So that's why you're listening to this podcast. And that brings me to The Great Courses. The Great Courses are video and audio lectures from top professors who are experts in their field. The one that I listened to, I didn't watch the video, I will admit, but I listened to is this guy, Professor Mark Stoller. He's at the University of Vermont. And he has done The Skeptic's Guide to American History, fits in exactly well with what we talk about on The Gist all the time. Last time I talked about this, I listened to a section about Woodrow Wilson and how he made me reevaluate things about Woodrow Wilson. That's a lift. That's maybe a medium lift. He does the same thing with George Washington. That's right. Put down your cherry tree axe because he disabuses you of some myths about George Washington. Not everything George Washington did was good, right? So The Great Courses has over 500 courses in history, science, photography, and more. You can watch them. You can download them. You can stream them. There are apps, DVDs, CDs, and we have a special offer for just listeners. Order The Skeptic's Guide to American History and get 80% off the original price. That's only for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. The setting of Pool No Water, a play being performed at the Barrow Street Theater in Manhattan, is the beautiful palm-filled home of a successful artist. So successful, she has a pool. Pictures of the pool indicate water that will come into play. When the successful artist invites her friends from her old days of struggle, friends who are still living through their current days of struggle, it should be noted, they reminisce, they drink, they experience emotions of jealousy and pangs of anger that are quickly dismissed because, well, it's such a nice house. And it's so nice of the successful friend to invite everyone to the house with the pool. And is there water? Uh, kind of a spoiler alert, but I won't say it. I will say there is an accident. What caused the accident? See the titular parenthetical. Anyway, after the successful art friend is hospitalized and comatose, her opportunistic old art buddies capitalize, then rationalize, and never quite exhibit the bravery to deal with the ethical decisions they've made one way or the other. It's all very interesting, very well acted, very well written. And when you find out what you're about to find out about Pool No Water, you'll realize how expertly staged it is. Pool No Water is written by British playwright Mark Ravenhill. He got some acclaim for the play Shopping and Fucking. That's, by the way, the name of a play, not just his Saturday. Joining me now are the director and one of the stars of the show. Yanthi Demos is the director. Nick Flint is one of the five people in the show. Hello, guys. How are you? Good. So I learned a phrase. Say, it, Tell me if I'm saying it right. Yanthi, you're Greek. You would know. Monolaic theater. 
It's a theater based on a monologue, a long monologue that can be delivered however many people the director wants. Sure. So tell me on the page what this show reads like. The show is one long piece of prose. It's broken up into paragraphs, but it is about 10 pages total when it's written out. And yeah, it's written as one piece of prose, one poem. And you have it acted by five performers. Yes. Has is other stagings chose a different number of performers? Anywhere from what I know from four to 12 performers. 12 performers. Really? And is it the job of the director to more than cast it, but to actually say who gets what line? Yes. And in our case, it was really a group effort. It was an ensemble kind of coming together and really dictating that and deciding that as a company. So Nick, tell me about that process. Uh, it was long and uh, complex, at times c- quite frustrating for everybody. Well, do people um, fight for lines? Everyone wants more lines? I know how actors can be. Not really. Yeah, no, not really in this case. We all work together. Uh, we've worked together for a long period of time. And it, we were really just trying to find the best result and find the rhythm of, for the whole piece to, mm-hmm. together and, and, and figure out how that should be delineated to deliver that. So we didn't argue over lines that much. So there's this novel by uh, Joshua Ferris called Then We Came to an End, and it's written in, I think, the first person collective is the tense. And it's very weird to read a novel like that. It's written from the perspective of a Chicago advertising agency. We saw this and we saw that. And from an advertising agency's perspective, like I think what the author was trying to do there is communicate the de-individualization. But here we're talking about artists, right? And the whole idea of artists is to, you know, stand up as the individual. But when they're speaking of the we, is do you think Ravenhill is kind of commenting on artists in a way, saying, oh, you all think you're unique, but here you are all saying we, and it's kind of having a group think? Yeah, um, there, there's there's real stuff in there about the communal experience. I mean, one of the lines in there is, um, we're the group. One of us goes up and one of us goes down. It's a, it's a natural thing. And part of the premise is the, the artist who became famous disrupted that balance. So it, it's a group experience. And, and all of their artistic suffering uh, is something that they share together. It doesn't feed into their individual approach to art itself, I don't think. Yeah. If they even do have an individual approach. I mean, the decisions they make are, doesn't seem like they're debating with themselves or each other about the decisions they make. It seems like they're struggling with it, but I don't know if one guy says, we should do this, and the other guy says, no, we should do that. I think they're conflicted at yeah. times. But, but like definitely, a person could be yeah, they, yeah, they are going down one train altogether, and they do make a collective decision that drives the piece. When but you... within that, we've tried to find the shades of... Um, of the hesitance across the group at different moments to give it that color and depth. What we discovered the more we worked on it is there is a collective voice and then there are individuals that kind of pop out of that to almost comment on the collective voice. So what are some of the things that a playwright would put in the text to make it clear, not not even clearly communicating to the people who are going to perform it, but, ah, I see, this is meant to be a play, and here are some examples of how this is meant to be performed as a play, as opposed to read as text or even performed as a monologue. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I yeah. mean, most plays yeah. have stage directions. Okay, does yeah. this... No. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and they have character names. Yeah. Right. Uh, and this scenes. Doesn't either. So what is he getting in there? Is, is Raven Hill just being difficult here, or is he making a point? No, I think he's being exciting. I think that, that, he's yeah. saying, here's another form. Here's yeah. how we can approach this in a different way. 
um, it's, what happens makes if it, you take poetry and theatricalize it. It makes it inherently collaborative, too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Some playwrights are pretty dictatorial. I want it this way. Right. And every, every, you're leaving the stage wrong. I mean, maybe if the guy's a master, it's okay. But that's got to be a little, not as exciting as the sort of it, thing you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's a collaborative art form. I don't really think that that works. I mean, plays are written to be interpreted by different groups of, of artists. Otherwise, the playwright should do it themselves. You know, this is, Ravenhill's, he's, he's a big deal in England. I think that he got some acclaim in the United States. You had to kickstart this campaign, right? Yep. Which is nothing against you. This is what you have to do. But it does say something about the state of theater that 20 companies haven't jumped on a play like this and tried to put it on before you. Because this is debuted in England in 2006. Yeah. Well, what we do know is that the rights were on hold for a while. Mm -hmm. And we received the rights right when I believe they were released. I don't know why they were on hold. We had been yeah, asking so for years. We had been asking yeah. since 2008 and were granted the rights in 2012. And what are some works, maybe even movies or things going on now that listeners might be familiar with that kind of use this idea of the Greek chorus that we see today rather than, you know, a Sophocles play? Uh, the Virgin Suicides. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe as, do as written. Yeah, do the right thing with those uh, three guys who are kind of commenting on the whole action. The three old guys who are, I think Bernie Mac's one of them, just commenting on everything that's going on. Yeah, I mean it's still out yeah. there. Yeah. It's probably out there even if writers don't know that they're channeling it. But yeah. I would assume most. There's, do, there's not a but... huge amount of it. Because um, yeah. it's it's challenging. It's it's very hard to to do well in sort of a meaningful way that people can connect to. I think. Um, so yeah, there's not a, a massive amount of material because we're always looking. <laughs> if there's a Greek chorus, one year lease is on it. Well, I want to thank you guys, Yanthi Demos, Nick Flint, with the play "Pool No Water" at the Barrow Street Theater through the end of November. Thanks so much, guys. Thank, thank you. you. And now the spiel. Headlines. A little bit about process, people ask me. Mike, where does your inspiration come from? And I say peyote. No, I don't. I say it comes from many sources. Today, my eye was drawn to a study as issued by Ohio State University. Headline, the Amish are doubling in population every 21 to 22 years. Why? Because Amish adults have a lot of little Amish kids. Now, that was interesting, but is it riffable? Can I put it in a greater context? I found that study on Twitter. I said, okay, but I moved on. Another way I get ideas, I sign up for a lot of emails. I get one from Brookings every day. And then I got this email today about ballot initiatives, snore. But it's about ballot initiatives about marijuana. So it's like a good kind of mellow kind of snore. So I didn't even know this. haven't been following the news. Alaska, Oregon, and D.C. all have legalization of marijuana on the ballot. Here's what Brookings says. Polling suggests a real chance that all three proposals may pass. Oregon and D.C. quite likely. Such moves come in the midst of political elites and the public at large changing their orientation on the issue in both states and D.C. legalizers are better funded than opponents. All right, that's a good fact. I thought it might be talkable. But really, the problem with it is I know I wouldn't be able to keep myself from doing a dozen marijuana puns, right? A budding political trend. I can't help myself. Legalized marijuana welcomed with a bang, if not a bong. You see, I can't stop once I start. Yes, we can a bus on ballot measure 91. So this is why I'm not doing it in the show, because you don't want and you don't need more of that. 
But today, the absolute best way for me to get riffable fodder from the day's news was couldn't be easier. It was all on the front pages. The front pages of the New York tabloids had all the great news. Like here in the New York Times, here's a headline. Lobbyists bearing gifts pursue attorney generals. And the way they illustrate this, this is about how this one big lobbying firm, what's called Dickstein Shapiro you know, wines and dines, attorney generals, and then the attorney generals don't look into uh, Dickstein Shapiro's clients. But it's all illustrated with one company, Five Hour Energy. And they had this Five Hour Energy executive moving quickly to shut investigations down, going one state at a time. They have her setting her sights on Attorney General Chris Coster of Missouri. They have this lawyer courting the attorney generals at dinner, at conferences, stuffing gift bags for the attorney generals, quote, aggressively pursuing the attorney generals. They have them tirelessly working. They say they're indefatigably pursuing. They're doggedly nudging. I have to tell you, five-hour energy could not have asked for a better advertisement than the verbs they use to describe the lawyers from five-hour energy. So, you know, my takeaway, five-hour energy, was it nefarious? Maybe. Were they duplicitous? Probably. Were they aggressively, eye-poppingly, in-your-facedly energetic? Hells to the yeah. Next headline. Again, I don't have to do anything today except look at the headlines. The Daily News, the story was the State Court of Appeals approves a marriage between relatives, in this case an uncle and a niece. You win the headline of the day contest, Daily News, because the headline is, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Niece. Uh, State Court of Appeals approves marriage between half-uncles and half-nieces. Despite the ick factor, a union between a half-uncle and a half-niece is not incestuous under New York's domestic relations law, according to a Court of Appeals ruling. All right, I got it. But a half-uncle? What the heck's a half-uncle? It's the sort of phrase I'd never heard before. I bet you'd never heard it before. But as soon as you hear it, you get it. Not because of the way the Daily News describes it. The bride's grandmother was also the groom's mother. The groom, however, had a different father than the bride's mother. That's not helpful. It's what's a half-uncle? It's your parent's half-sibling. That's your half-uncle. Maybe this guy married your aunt. Maybe this lady married your dad. So a half-sibling. There's genetics involved, but only half the genetic code of a full uncle. But if there is a half-uncle, is there a word, should there be a word in the language half-funcular? You know, half-funcular, someone who gives advice, but like their heart's not really in it, right? They might say, neither a borrower nor a lender be, but you know what? If you want to do it, whatever. That's someone who would be half-funcular. Now, to the last headline. This is a headline in all the papers, World Series Game 7. We talked about this at the beginning of the show. And that means tomorrow there's no baseball. Tonight, a great game, we hope. Tomorrow, no baseball. Summer will turn to fall. The leaves will change. The boys of summer will recede into that cornfield of our imagination. Actually, that's not what it means. What it means is the death of the world's worst commercials. Because with a baseball game comes radio ads that are just terrible. They think all you have to do is tie the ad into baseball, right? Hit a home run with BP gas or swing for the fences with nationwide insurance or hi i'm alan trammell a lot of people come into second with their spikes up but now spike tv is up to a night of programming you won't want to miss or hi i'm leon durham i used to swing an extra bat in the on deck circle but your deck shouldn't be trusted with anything less than thompson's water seal all right so baseball commercials are the worst Actually, they're not the worst. I found another worst, a new low. An advertiser so desperate to shoehorn their way into relevance that 
they embarrass themselves. This is the nadir of this phenomenon. It's Pandora advertising. You wouldn't think it would be so hard to cut an ad that fits in well with music advertising, but some companies just try way too hard, right? So let's play this ad. You love to indulge your senses with the music you like. It's why you love Pandora. That is just a really weird way of expressing why we listen to music. Indulging my senses? Ah, maybe one sense. Definitely not taste. All right, but let's say I'm on board enough to say, to buy your premise and to say, I listen to Pandora to indulge my senses. All right, where are you going with this ad? Lexus of Manhattan understands indulgence, and we understand how to indulge you with affordable luxury. You want affordable luxury? Oh my God, there was no other connection to buying a car? Isn't there a rock group, The Cars? Aren't there songs about cars? I think I listened to something called Cadillac Ranch. Okay, not Lexus Ranch, but that was just trying way too hard. That was the Leon Durham of Pandora commercials. So remember, this is Mike Pesca saying you download a podcast every day, and please keep on doing this. Don't make this podcast your pod last. Ay, ay, ay. And that's it for today's show. As the producer of The Gist, Andrea Salenzi knows what it means to get to the point on topics. That's why she uses Hey Glow laser pointers for all her pointing out needs. Joel Meyer, managing producer of podcasts, knows a thing or two about managing and mangers. That's why he endorses Christian Carl's manger assembly service. One donkey, two donkey, Christian Carl has them all. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. As such, he knows his way around an execution, like with a guillotine. And that's why he drives a Lexus. It slices through traffic and heads off repairs. You can subscribe to The Gist in iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. You can get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email or the app Yo, which if you download, subscribe to podcast and we'll let you know when the show posts. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist again. The Halloween offer. If a goblin comes to your door on Halloween, please take a picture of said goblin. Put it on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. You will win a prize. Or you can email the gist at Slate.com. I, Mike Pesca, have been known to inhale and exhale. And speaking of exhale, I could no longer endorse hail and hearty soups. Their corn chowder ratios are all off. Their cream of mushroom, I question. Cream near mushroom cream in mushroom but cream of mushroom that's why i'm endorsing steve soups steve soups they come with a spoon thanks for listening i'm hannah rosen this week on the double x gap fest we're going to talk about gamergate is it about women hating trolls or something larger find out on thursday's double x gap fest look for us in the slate store or on itunes or at slate.com slash podcasts